The ground thaws, the grass greens, and soon after, a riotous flush of delightful yellows infuse our urban and suburban lawns with a warm and radiant joy. This is the dandelion. And as much as many of us may try and fight the onslaught, the dandelion will forever be synonymous with our lawns. So, might as well sit back, grab a snack of dandelion fritters, take a sip of your dandelion wine, and enjoy the show. This is a single acorn podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor. How now, brown cow? Tired of being moose understood? Utterly exhausted at having to repeat yourself? Often asked, could you slow it down? We're here for you, no bull. At How Now Brown Cow, we're a full-service diction support center. No issue is too big or too small. We work with stutters, lisps, presentation practice, and more. Your satisfaction is guaranteed or your money back. How are we so certain you'll succeed? Because we're the brown cows with the know-how for you to plow through those wedding vows. Well, hey there, fellow naturalists, and welcome back to the Single Acorn podcast. We are wrapping up our season on urban wildlife by talking about something that's urban, but that is not exactly wildlife. So we are, yeah, going to be talking about the common dandelion. And I am joined this week by Dr. Christine Fleener. I'm still here. Hello. And... We have our special guest, Mr. Glenn Etter, who is a pet groomer at the Dandy Lion. Yes, I am. Do you do you groom lions? We do. Well, you know, it's it's been tough on a lot of small businesses, you know, with the COVID and so forth. So we've had to expand recently. We expanded out from cats and dogs to all manner of animals, you know, lions, bears, tigers. Oh my. Yeah, but then things like roly polies. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for noticing that. <laughs> We often say, oh my, when we're grooming them. Yeah. Yeah, we do roly-polies, crickets, praying mantises. Cellar spiders? Cellar spiders. We do a variety of sea sea animals, anemones, corals, squid. <laughs> we groom people. Plants. In case they need yeah. plants, yes. Yes, we do dandelions. It's a good thing. I hear we're talking about dandelions today. I think that's why is you that brought me Is that a coincidence? Yeah, that, that is. your it, name it, is a dandelion? It's a total dandelion? coincidence, actually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we booked Glenn months ago, mm-hmm. way before we lined up this topic. Yeah, I with my son, the, I love the the word dandelion. Uh, comes from I think French dan, dan as in dent or tooth, dans, and then yeah, de lion, the tooth of lion, because of the mm-hmm. shape of the leaves having those little jagged teeth on the edge. But with my son, uh, we call it Dan de Leon. And we have this whole story about the, this guy, Dan DeLeon, who uh, nobody can ever understand what he says. So they, he goes on all these adventures with his buddies. And they're always like, Dan, Wait, how old is your son you right now? That's... Cedar. Cedar is almost yeah. four. Yeah. Okay, that yeah. checks out. That's yeah. that's the Dan DeLeon time <laughs> yeah. for those sorts of jokes. He Dan DeLeon, that's my groomer's name, too. All of us oh, have yeah? groomer's names. Yeah. Oh. Is that also but a coincidence? That is everything's is a coincidence. It's all part of the underlying matrix of coincidence. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I recommend lions, tigers. You can't go wrong with those as a pet. They elephants. They stay cute. They stay cute. They stay small. They stay small. They stay cute. They, they love do. you forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that, they rip that's your faces off. At any I believe we talked about this at the beginning of our our season on urban wildlife, but there was some guy in uh, in New York City who is got busted for having a tiger, and he would take it for walks up and down his stairwell. Talk um, about Tiger King. <laughs> I didn't see Tiger King, I no, but wouldn't. I imagine it was yeah. 
uh, similar to that. Wow. In the stairwell. In the stairwell. Yeah. So, yeah. So we're going to talk about dandelions and dandelions are, we talked about, we talked about gray squirrels and gray squirrels being these great ambassadors to the natural world where they're incredibly charismatic. They're, you know, essentially everywhere that you could go on planet Earth, you'll find gray squirrels, as at, at least if you're in a city. And with dandelions, it's the same thing in terms of abundance, although dandelions are arguably far more abundant. But the biggest difference is instead of being uh, ambassadors, they're sort of like anti ambassadors and so if you're totally disconnected with nature it seems like you could either have this sort of disconnected appreciation or like fondness for the natural world without having any real understanding of it or you could have an absolute disdain of nature where you're just constantly battling it without really understanding the underlying ecological you know principles of how those organisms yeah exist in the world and dandelions are definitely the la- the latter where, you know, people have a lawn, they want a lawn to look a particular way, and the dandelion is thwarting them at every step along the way. Sometimes those same lawn owners have a bird feeder and the squirrels are thwarting them at the bird feeder mm. and they hate the squirrels too. <laughs> That's What a fun. life <laughs> to be a colonizer, you know? Such <laughs> yeah. a hard life. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. So we've been starting these off by, uh, yeah, diving into the taxonomy. And with the other ones, uh, they're pretty easy because we start with the kingdom, which is Animalia. But for this one, we are in Plantae. So yeah, the mnemonic here, I think for maybe one of our other mnemonics, we used a D instead of a P for our second taxonomic mm. level. So here I've got a I've got a plant taxonomy hierarchy mnemonic for us. Kinky dancers can't mm-hmm. order filthy giant sex. Why wouldn't they be Why wouldn't they? Exactly. Can I make a slight recommendation? for Because that is a wonderful one. But I wonder if slacks could be slacks. Because oh, so, yeah, sure. dancers need slacks, but they don't need filthy slacks because people are watching them dance. Yeah, certainly not the kinky dancers. Yeah. Uh, that, <laughs> th- that mnemonic is courtesy of one of my botany students. Um, it's very good yeah, the way it is. Uh, thank you. Yes. They passed. So, yeah, we've got kingdom, plantae, and then D for division instead of P for phylum. So when we do plant taxonomy, we use division instead of phylum because everybody has to be siloed and let everybody else know that they're siloed. Uh, so tracheophyta is the division, and then and that's basically all vascular plants. And then class is, and this is our, what is our class um, for humans? Oh, shoot. Class mammalia. Yeah, yeah. I got him. I get him flipped around sometimes. Which one's which? Yeah. So for the class for dandelions, it's Magnoliopsida, and this is basically all the flowering plants, essentially. And then our order, Christine, I'm gonna our order primates. Yeah, primates. And this is Asterales, and so Asterales starts to maybe sound familiar. We're in the aster-like plants, and then our family. What's our family? Hominidae. Yeah. Hominidae. I can't remember what the letters are at the <laughs> hominidae. end. Hominidae. Yeah, hominidae. <laughs> and so all, almost all, all animal families end in I-D-A-E. So yeah, A-day. that's what it is. Okay. And then it's super easy for plants because they all end in A-C-E. A-C-E. So this is Asteraceae, the aster family. Yeah. And then our genus, this is where it starts to get really fun. Homo. Rax- what did you say? It's our genus. 
is homo. I was just adding that since oh, yes, that was yes, my yes. job. Yes. And for Dana Lance, it's Taraxicum. And there are about 60 sapiens. different species of Taraxicum. What's that? Sapiens. I was just oh, doing sapiens. my part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Homo sapiens. So these, okay, so uh, Taraxicum is a genus that has like 60 different species. And we'll get into why for dandelions that numbers anywhere between six and a few hundred, it becomes really difficult to define a species. So there, the species concept is really quite tricky because... There are a bunch of different definitions of what species are, and organisms have been around for almost 4 billion years, and so they have had 4 billion years of time to evolve a whole bunch of different exceptions to the rule. And so They're also it's also pretty mammal centric, right? Like when a lot of these when Linnaeus was building his like taxonomic structure, what was his primary focus, do you know? Yeah, sexual reproduction in flowers. In flowers. Okay. Yeah. I take it all back. Yeah. So if you're, you know, if your species concept is based around sex, then for species, yeah. you know, 99.99999 repeating individual organisms on this plant are, or planet are asexual, the bacteria, yeah. and yeah. they don't have any sex. So is every individual bacterial its cell own species, yeah. its own species because it's reproductively isolated? Anyways, with, with dandelions, it's, it's tricky because some populations are entire like they're asexual they can't sexually reproduce and so then it's pretty unclear if a population that is asexual is entirely uh its own species and then yeah you said sapiens for the species and the species for dandelions is officinale and if you see officinale or officinalis the linnaeus gave the it's called a specific epithet, the last name and the, the scientific name. He gave that officinale to anything that was like in the official apothecary. So some plants that were extremely important for uh, yeah medicinal uses. Okay, but isn't the big important thing that dandelions do is they just kind of like make, you, make your tummy feel a little bit better? <laughs> like, they are that, so much more than that. I've got to defend prolific. the dandelion. <laughs> I mean, don't get me like wrong. It is my favorite. It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, no, they, I mean, they like have tea. a they have a bunch of different uses. I mean, there's Dandy Dandy Blends or something is a company that they sell dandelion coffees and extracts. And they have a list on their website of all the different uses of it. And if you look at, you know, indigenous peoples and folk traditions, there are in an incredible number of different ailments that were used to treat these. One of the most common uses is around uh, like liver treatments and purifiers. So I think they had, yeah, maybe, maybe so... more than just making your tummy <laughs> more feel than a just little a, bit better. More than just a nice bedtime tea. Fine. Yeah. The first time I ever had, so they make uh, coffee. Whenever you hear the word coffee, it just means like a roasted tea. And so you roast the thing first. And with dandelion, if you roast the the root and you do it a little bit slower, it takes on this like really, really, really sweet sort of delicate flavor to it. It's incredible. And I went to, uh, (laughs) um, in another life, I went to a rainbow gathering out in (laughs) Wyoming. And the first stop that I made on my hike into the main camp was at this little tea hut. And they were making dandelion root coffee. And it was fantastic uh, and i've made it since and it's yeah it's just like a very very gentle sweet wonderful flavor 
so it makes your tummy feel good in the sense that you just feel warm and fuzzy uh, in addition (laughs) to the other medicinal properties so okay so in addition to there being because like don't get me wrong dandelion tea is my favorite tea but i always thought it was just for like good for digestion and like stimulating a healthy digestive system but there's like also like this excretory system the liver is also impacted is there anything else like does it impact your like heart health or any other organs or things that do you know of big old shrug Okay. The doctrine of signatures, it's good for your lion's teeth. Yeah, your tooth health. Or your hair, if you have hair that sort of goes way out. Kind of gets yeah. crazy. Exactly. Yeah. It'll actually make that fly out of your head, but it's spectacular. One of the other common names for it is blow ball because <laughs> it's a little on the nose. That's lazy, though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's got some some great, great other names. Uh, So I've found some, I've got this book that has common names from a bunch of different cultures. And some of the ones listed in there were like uh, Kankerwort. Uh, Wort is just German for plant. And so Kanker, as in cancer, kind of comes from that, but thought to be useful for treating like warts. So any sort of skin ailment, the sap from it. Can it be called Wortwort? Yes. Potentially. Yeah. Wart Vort. Face clock is one name for it. And apparently that has something to do with the fact that the number of blows that it takes to remove all of the little fruits from the little flower head is the hour of the day. Baloney. That's actually true. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. How many yeah. blows? I, well, I don't know why I said I don't know if that's get... true. <laughs> it's yeah, not. It's not. There's no. It could be sometimes. <laughs> If you do that, yeah, if you check your watch first. Yeah. The Italian name, one of the Italian names is, I'm going to say this incorrectly, but Pissican. And so piss as in piss. And then can as in piss. Piss as in piss. Yeah. And then cane as in canis. You know what you should do? You should make this a game and you should give us three names and we have to pick the name that's not the real name. So give us, or the name that's the correct name. So if you have Pissican, which already I'm going to say that's the fake name. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay, I'll do that. So yeah. we've we've got, let's see, I got to come up with a fake one because otherwise the fake one is just going to be the last one. It's going to be you being like, and Dandy Lo- <laughs> yeah. Tiger? Yeah. Okay. Let's see. Okay, so uh, the King's Knickers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay. Okay. <laughs> pee a bed. What was as that? As in pee a bed. As in pee a bed. To pee in a bed. Yeah. And uh, which is Gowan? The first one. Because I don't. The King's it. Knickers. Because it's, cause that plant does not look like pants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there is a plant called Dutchman's Breeches. And those look exactly like a Dutchman's <laughs> like Breeches. Like some Dutchman's Breeches. Now, I believe uh, in my reading. Pee bed is another one of its medicinal qualities, right? It helps you pee. It's a diuretic yeah. in some cases. So there you go. Although that might also make your stomach feel better. Yeah. Although, I, yeah, I think that's just tied in with sort of activating your, your kidneys and making, yeah. I heard that in China, in some parts of China, it's called earth nail. That's the translation for its gigantic taproot, which is a pretty wow. cool name, earth nail. Also thinking about using that for my band, my band name. Yeah. <laughs> pretty nail. hardcore earth nail. Yeah, that sounds pretty sick. Yeah, it's better than pee a bed, I think. 
Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. Although, Although King's Knickers. Be... King's Knickers. <laughs> pee your britches. <laughs> you could be like a... Pee your knickers. Pee a bed could be like a toddler punk band. Yeah. <laughs> there are too few toddler punk bands, in my opinion. I would agree with that. Um, all right. So in one of our episodes from season two, when we were talking about scat and urine, I asked what costs more, a gallon of bobcat urine or a gallon of syrup. And I'm going to return to that benchmark of a, we're going to use coyote urine because they're another urban wildlife. And uh, so I'm going to ask you, what costs more, a gallon of coyote urine or an ounce of dandelion seeds? How much is an ounce of dandelion seeds in volume? Is how that like an entire how, ship? What is the process by which somebody gets coyote urine? Um, like you have captive coyotes. And you just put a little funnel. Yeah. And give them a little target, and they just go for their life. Yeah, give give them some pee a bed, maybe. And I, I'm gonna say <laughs> the pee a bed is more expensive than the dandelion. Oh no, is this gonna be? Yeah, easy peanuts, right? Because you just blow a, you just you just can all you have to do is blow a puff, and then yeah, you got your you go. seeds. Yeah. So uh, a dandelion, uh, an ounce of dandelions cost about fifty five bucks from Johnny's seed catalog. What? Holy moly. What? Is it Johnny. just because of the diversity they like are giving you specifically specific Buy stock types? and Johnny. <laughs> yeah. Johnny. I mean we'll yeah, we'll we'll get there. Um what we'll do now is we'll sort of run through like the, the physical characteristics of the plant. But uh yeah, dandelion is a commonly cultivated plant. So you're buying a cultivar of dandelion, uh, and the seeds are yeah, quite pricey. So Wow. Yeah, go into. Is, we were talking about our our hot take uh, on GameStop <laughs> earlier. But here's our next one. Yeah. We're mostly a stock tip type a stock podcast. Tip. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so for the physical description of dandelions, they are herbaceous plants and they're perennials. So herbaceous just means they don't have any secondary growth. They don't put on any woody material, but they are perennials. And so the part of the plant that is perennial is the above ground, or sorry, the below ground part with their... uh, The earth nail. The earth nail, exactly. In permaculture, they call it biodynamic accumulators, where they're these things that have deep roots. So dandelion roots... Some resources just throw out this number of 15 feet deep for the taproot is how deep they can extend. I've which, heard occasionally, I don't uh, know if it's true, but they actually penetrate down into the magma layer and just burst into flames. <laughs> it's called exploding dandelion. That's that's true. <laughs> Might if, be an urban legend or actually, yeah, suburban legend. Yeah. Uh, I was going to make a movie reference. I can't, What was the one where they go to the core and they like set off a nuke the or core? something? Is it called the core? I think it is. is. Hardcore? Yeah. <laughs> But it turns out in the core, yeah, the, the last thing they see <laughs> is a dandelion root. <laughs> yeah. I, so I, you know, I, I question that number 15 feet deep. It, it's possible in really like dry, poor, sandy soils. Uh, but for the most part, they're up in the top 6 to 12 inches. But these plants that have these bio, the bioaccumulators, they have these deep tap roots that mine down into the soil for sodium for potassium for minerals and then they draw those into the roots and then bring them up towards the surface and then feel the growth of you know the leaves and the flowers but the the tap roots wind up accumulating all of these nutrients from the soil and so they're really good for uh, in permaculture for yeah building up the health of the soil but so with the roots of of dandelion they're they're cool for a few different reasons one of the 
I think one of the more fascinating things about them is uh, well, they don't have shoots at all, so they have no stem. Yeah, so with their roots, they have these this adaptation that a bunch of different plants have, which are these contractile roots. And essentially what that means is the root is capable of swelling really large in the spring and then in, in the summer. And then in the later months, when the soil gets drier, the roots will actually contract and shrink. But the very bottom of the taproot will stay anchored in place. And so it sort of acts like an accordion where... It, it like stretches out and then the bottom stays anchored or one side of the accordion stays anchored. And then as it contracts, one end of the accordion, the top part of the plant, contracts down towards the bottom. And so it's a way of pulling the plant down year after year so that it's all of its leaves and the flower buds and everything can stay right at the soil surface. Hmm. Wow. You're saying it has no stem, but you know, you sort of look at a dandelion and you kind of pluck it, it looks like a stem. Perhaps you could explain that. Oh, that's the term. Uh, the the peduncle is the stalk of the flower. Head. It's trousers, if you will. Yes, it's <laughs> it's trousers. <laughs> yeah, the, pedun- yeah. the peduncle is connected to the trousers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that's not that's not the the stem from the body of the plant. That is the air quotes stem of the flower. The flower head. Yeah, got it. So it would be akin to like the stem of an apple or something like that on the fruit of the apple, not, yeah, not the twig oh, or the okay, branch. okay, got it. So they don't have a, a true uh, stem on the plant. So the leaves wind up developing directly from the root. For dandelions, which are, you know, they grow in our uh, lawns. And when you talk about like human evolution, uh, one of the things that gets talked about is like early ancestral environment. And so what was the environment like where humans evolved? And so with dandelions, dandelions didn't evolve in urban environments, although they certainly are evolving currently, but they evolved in a different habitat. And there would have been different selective pressures that made it more ecologically advantageous for dandelions to have deep tap roots, no stem and the leaves in what's called a basal rosette or this little circle that just hugs the the surface of the soil. So why would plants want to not have a stem at all if a stem allows you to grow vertically and compete for sunlight? You can cover more ground. Explain what you mean. Uh, like instead of growing high, you can grow wide and cover more ground. Like the slob at the bus station who just like throws all their stuff hey, over spreads. all over yeah. the benches so no one else can sit next to Yeah, to specifically. I'm working on that. Don't talk about Glenn. I was wondering, is it, Please. your basal rosettes probably if you're getting stepped on a lot, stamped, it doesn't really bother you because you're just already flat. Yeah. So that would be helpful. Yeah, I mean, both of those. So, you know, most of, uh, I don't want to say most, but a lot of competition happens in the seedling stages for things. And so if you can make it past the seedling stage, then you're you're good, right? And so if you have this basal rosette, the dandelion, that covers, you know, this... I mean, they can be up to maybe about two feet across at most. But if you can block out two feet in a circle, then any seeds that land there are going to be shaded out and won't be able to grow up. But then the other thing is not for, you know, if something's like if I step on a jewelweed plant, which have these, you know, really delicate stems, but they can grow four or five feet tall. If I step on one of those, the plants toast, whereas a dandelion, if you step on it, it'll be fine. But there's something other than stepping that's more important. 
what are they trying to avoid? Getting grazed, grazed, eaten. Yeah, yeah getting grazed, right, by large ungulates. Ungulates, ungulates. Yeah, so if you, you know, if you're a plant and you live in an open, sunny environment, then chances are there are going to be little ungulates or large ungulates walking through that'll bend down and try and nip at your leaves. And if you're hugging the ground, then it's going to be even harder for them to pluck. I mean, if you have no stem, they're not going to pluck the stem, uh, but it'll be really difficult for those grazers to get the uh, any of the leaves off. And then this is like a pre-adaptation for urban environments where we don't have grazers. Well, I guess, you know, we yeah. have deer, but um, we have lawnmowers. We have big metal grazers. We have big old metal grazers. Finn and I do this. My son, Finn and I, if we see an ungulate, we drop down on the ground. Stop and drop, we call it. <laughs> They're less likely to nibble us. It makes a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for noticing. Yeah. Um, one of the cool things, so, you know, we were talking about adaptations in urban, in urban environments and, you know, there are pre-adaptations certainly that dandelions have, but there are also responses that dandelions have to the urban environment. And so if you simulate grazers coming through or lawnmower growing through, one, there are a couple of different responses. One is that the flower stalk that pops up next will grow much shorter if the plant has just been grazed on or mowed, right? So they're expecting future mowing or future growing. So they have this response, this sort of plasticity built in. This is one of the key features of urban urban animals and urban plants is that they have a lot of plasticity to them. And so the flower stalk length can be shorter if they get grazed on. And then the, the pappus length, uh, all those little fruits, those little floaty things that come off of the flower head, uh, all of those little fruits called achenes, they can have different pappus length, the little feathery hairs that come off. They can either be long or they can be short. And the longer they are, the better they are at traveling big distances. (laughs) So what do you think about pappus length after it gets mowed or grazed? Is it longer or shorter? I think because they're shorter, they need longer pappuses so they'd be able to still fly enough distance, even though they're like not starting from very high. But that could be wrong. Does the does the length actually contribute to the distance they can go? Yeah, big time. Yeah. Okay. Then I agree. Yeah. Well, it's, okay. So if you're a seed, you want to find somewhere that's suitable habitat. And if there is a well-known grazer in the area with steel teeth, uh, you probably want to get farther away. So grazing events or mowing events increase the length of the pappus so that the wings travel or the the fruits travel farther and farther away amazing amazing <laughs> i'm they're even getting even Science. dandier they're getting dandier by the second by the second me. by the minute we'll say don't exaggerate have you guys ever eaten dandelion leaves mm-hmm. i have they're good except for if you get them a little too late then they get quite bitter that's been my experience yeah. That's always true. Why is that true? Oh, good question. I mean, I don't know specifically what's going on in there, but just like more mature things tend to have more of some mature. <laughs> when people have a lot of experiences, they have some disappointments and their dreams don't come true and they get yeah. bitter. <laughs> yeah. That is what it is. I, I know just this jaded. is true. <laughs> they're just, yeah, they're, they're plants that have lived a long, hard life and. They're facing up to the harsh realities. Or not (laughs) even really. They're not accepting it. Um, But yeah, what's in those leaves? 
don't they they need sugar it's at some point they're putting sugar into oh, their flowers yeah. right they're putting that they're making sense. a lot of sugar at some point in their life to attract yeah. things and then they don't need that anymore they don't need pollinators yeah most things that you're you know most medicinal plants are things that grow in full sunlight and or in pretty sunny environments uh, because they're growing in full sun, they have all this extra energy that they can waste on whatever they want. And so they waste it on producing plant or uh, producing, you know, a whole suite of metabolites that can be used for chemical defense from grazing insects, grazing deer, anything that might eat them. And early in the growing season, like if you have that basil rosette, you want to just send out that basil rosette before anything else can germinate right around you. And so you're just competing for space. So initially it's competing for space, but then, you know, after that first flush of growth, then you're com not competing, but you're uh, protecting yourself from things eating you. It's the same reason why like uh, sap gets buddy when you're tapping maples for mm -hmm. syrup. The later on in the season, once it gets warmer, flying insects are out and start to, you know, drink sap from the maples and so the maples have to start creating these chemical defenses that yeah uh, and they call that buddy like your butt they, no uh, buddy as in uh like, oh, the like bud a bud oh. is about to burst <laughs> yeah so when the buds swell and are it's about like, to burst ah, tastes like butt <laughs> yeah <laughs> my butt's about to burst yeah the bursting butt another <clears throat> potential band name for toddlers yeah the bursting butts <laughs> <laughs> what was our other one? <laughs> Double feature with bursting butts and <laughs> pee, pee a bed. Uh, yeah, pee a bed. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the the bitterness that you're tasting in those leaves is called uh, they're sesquiterpenes, um, and terpenes are a whole category of molecules and plants that make them quite bitter or toxic to things that want to eat them. Yeah, they're. Uh, Dandelion greens, when they're younger, are pretty good. They get pretty fibrous and rough as they get older. Yeah, I looked up the nutrient profiles for these, and dandelions are, are quite impressive in terms they're of... They're like potassium-rich or something, or vitamin well, C. They're like a super vegetable, vitamins. right? I think they're one of the super vegetables. Yeah, so for potassium, they have a little bit more potassium than kale. So not quite as much as as spinach. So I compared them with spinach and, and kale. They have more vitamin B6 than either of those. They have more vitamin C than spinach by a lot. How much more? Like, Dang. could you equate them by saying, like, one bunch of spinach is equal to one dandelion? Or is that not how nutrition works? Well, yeah, so we could say one serving, so 100 okay. grams. Uh, let's say 100 grams of each of these. And this is just raw, so not dried or anything like that. And in dandelion, dandelions have 45 calories. Spinach has 23 calories and kale has 35. And then you can go and you can, you know, compare vitamin A. So dandelion has the most. Um, it has almost double what uh, kale has. And then, yeah, there's, you know, what else do you want to compare? Vitamin C. It has you know, 33% more than spinach, um, but about a third of what kale has. Yeah, so there's a bunch of different stuff you can compare them. And they do really well. They have more vitamin C than tomatoes. Yeah, so they're sort of a nutrient-packed thing. And this is generally true for any wild plant. Any wild plant is going to have a better nutrient profile than domesticated plants. 
You know what makes them taste extra nice is pesticides. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so make sure that if you go out and you harvest a bunch of dandelions, you're doing it from just like really poisonous like yards. Yeah, that's a great caveat. Do you know how you can <laughs> tell if a yard has been sprayed no. or not? I can't. Usually they have a sign <laughs> that's <a> sprayed. <laughs> but, but the other way is uh, um, they uh, sprayed lawns have way, way lower species diversity. Oh, so if, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, I, which is obvious, right? Because, you know, Roundup is going to target mostly dicots. Um, yeah. So uh, that excludes grasses. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah, so yeah, definitely be be careful of where you're harvest, harvesting from. That was, I think, maybe we didn't quite connect the dots there, but uh, pissican, the Italian word, which means dog piss, uh, because of where they grow, right? <laughs> so they tend to grow in places. <laughs> That's why where they're yellow. Dogs pee. Yeah, exactly. Pee. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, should we move up the stem, so to speak? Although, Ooh, hubba, I guess, hubba. Not yeah, really stemless, let's do it. stemless. Up the stemless stem. Yeah. The trousers. <laughs> so, one of my. You know, my favorite parts about dandelion is in the probably happens sometime like late April into early May, depending on the year. But we get this after, you know, all the snow is melted and the top layer of the soil has started to warm. Then we get this huge flush where all the lawns green up. And then almost immediately after the dandelions send up these beautiful golden flowers and it's just, you know, there's a field next to my house where they don't spray. Uh, they mow quite frequently, but they, yeah, it's it's just incredible. It's, the whole thing turns yellow by mid-late May. Uh, it's really quite fantastic. I yeah. agree. Yeah, cool. Great. That's what hey, I was fishing for. Have you, been in the, <laughs> have you been to the Dandelion Run? There's one up in Northeast Kingdom of Vermont, and it's through these like fields and fields of dandelions. It's a race? It's a race. Well, it's like a, you know, it's like a half marathon kind of thing. No, I've never heard of that. In Carbondale, Colorado, they made the dandelion their official flower, and they have a parade, the dandelion parade, but I've never done that. They should have a dandelion run. So how long, I don't know if I've ever paid attention to this, um, but how long do they stay yellow before they kind of go to seed and get all puffy? Yeah, that's kind of tricky. Like if you look at the the center, the heart of the basil rosette, there will be a whole bunch of little buds in there mm-hmm. that are these little flower buds. And each each flower, again with the air quotes, uh, each flower is composed of about 100 smaller flowers. So that big yeah. yellow round thing is a composite. So I said they're in the family Asteraceae. Yep. The first name used for it was Compositae. And... all the asters have these composite flowers which is one flower head composed of a bunch of smaller little flowers so they have a about a hundred or so of these flowers they're called ligulate flowers and at the heart of it they have these all these little flower buds and so one will spring up or maybe a couple will spring up from the same basil rosette if it gets nibbled or mowed then it has another bud that's developing ready to go uh it takes a about from the time that the flower shoots up about 10 to 12 days for the full cycle to go from starting to grow to being pollinated if it gets pollinated to producing seeds to scattering the seeds so it's a pretty pretty quick turnaround Mm -hmm. and then in one season i guess does a plant like produce uh all of its flowers at the same time 
or does it, you know, put up a flower, that one gets pollinated or it doesn't, and then it seeds, and then another one comes up? Or, like, what? what's their kind of, like, reproductive process for that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, definitely they have – they're total generalists in terms of pollinators – so yeah. they don't have to worry about syncing up with when a right. particular pollinator is out flying around. And yeah, so they're they just generalists in that sense. They just keep going. There's the, you know, two thirds probably at least of the flowers spring up in the early spring. But you can find dandelion flowers throughout the summer and also well into the fall. And so they have an incredibly long growing season. And further to the south where there is no growing season, it's just warm, they can flower throughout the year. And so, again, there's like a spike, at least here in the north, where they'll, yeah, Yeah. send up a lot in the spring. That's interesting. I can't wait to talk more about reproduction, especially because, so, I mean, there are all sorts of things that can contribute to any plant or animal's selection, but I know that like growing season is a big thing that separates species. So Mm -hmm. like, yeah, I don't know. I was just imagining like, well, if you have some plants that are early season plants and some that are late season plants, and then those you would eventually get, you know, subspecies from that. Um, But if they're just constantly popping up, no matter what, I'm wondering what their selective process is like, like what kind of selection acts on dandelions. Yeah, well, I mean, that that's what sort of brings us, yeah, to, I guess, maybe the, the next point here, which is uh, this idea of apomixis. And mm-hmm. apomixis is the fancy cool word in botany for plants that reproduce. So I, I actually, I don't know. Mixis is probably mix. <laughs> and then apo is not. Uh, maybe that's not the etymology <laughs> of it, but things that don't <laughs> no mix. Makes sense. No mixing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, Tell and you so, are married. Uh, Apomixis um, is relatively common. So about, you know, 10% of all plants do this, which is very different from the animal world where it's way less common. Um, But yeah, so it's, and there are different ways of doing this with dandelions, the female mega gametophyte, but basically the, the egg, instead of undergoing meiosis, which is a cell division, that reduces the number of chromosomes. And so you have a male cell that is developed through meiosis and a a male and a female cell that are developed through meiosis and then they fuse and they're back to the diploid or double number of chromosomes. And with dandelions, the female sex cell does not, is not generated through meiosis. There's a mistake and it generates through mitosis. So the chromosome number stays the same and it's it's incapable of producing viable offspring if it fuses with a sperm cell from a, a dandelion. And so not all dandelions have this, but some populations do have this. Basically, an individual dandelion becomes reproductively isolated from all other dandelions and the female structure or cell that will generate the fruit that little akeen or floating what people call seed that doesn't get it gets produced but without sex and so it's a clone of the parent plant and so there's essentially no evolution or there's no selective process happening on that rather than having selection act on dandelions to evoke change 
which is probably not the best way of saying it, but what you wind up getting or why dandelions are still able to be so successful is they have an enormous amount of flexibility in terms of their size, their shape, the length of the pappus, and all the other different features on there. So they have just a large amount of plasticity to their shape. So selection is not as important. So is the pollination for all these apomictic dandelions just sort of for show? Like insects insects come and they carry pollen around and it's just all... Like, haha. I mean, they have male really do and anything. female parts, right? So they can still pollinate each other. But the sex cells on these really apomictic dandelions is, are the pollen tubes don't generate. And so the pollen grains are basically sterile. Right. It's kind of badass. It's like they're producing all this extra pollen and these tubes and these structures. They don't even need them. They don't even use them. It's just like yeah. extra. We're so strong. We can make extra stuff and we're well, still so going to spread everywhere. I just everywhere. have so many questions about how we got to this. Like why even? Ugh. I also have a million questions because I'm not a plant doctor uh, about how plant sex works. Um like, for example, I have this huge dead R cedar in my backyard, and it's a male, and it has these teeny tiny little cones. And then the females have these big ass, co- sorry, big cones. And I'm thinking, like, okay, these are two different sexes of this tree, but they each are generating cones. What, ha- what, how, how do, how do they do this? What, how, how do these, and how trees- dare they? How and how dare da- they? How dare they? <laughs> yeah, I mean, Basically, it's like they're, you know, for humans, they're males and females. And, um, oh, now, I, okay, you, you could have just said that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so, I mean, you know, like the word cone is just a, a way of describing the reproductive structures on yeah. those conifers. And so, for humans, you would use maybe genitals or something like that. And so, yeah. the morphology of the cones for, your what did you say it was a a dadar cedar so like the they're like little cones and big cones but i'm like how do they meet and well the little cones are producing pollen and then the larger cones are producing ovules that the pollen lands on and then fertilizes them are you suggesting teague that we teach our kids not to say pine cones but to say pine genitals <laughs> I just want to clarify this for my Precisely child. what I'm suggesting. <laughs> yes. Okay. Good uh, to know. Good. Yeah, good to know. It was apomictic, but good. but again, so all of it's sort of her show, the whole pollination process. Well, so I I've, I've been thinking about this because why would you still produce pollen? And it's it's very clear like if you smell pollen, like a poll or sorry, if you smell a dandelion flower and you get your sniffer right in there, you get all this yellow dust onto your nose uh, at that same rainbow gathering i went to this uh, <laughs> edible uh, edible plant ge- uh workshop and this guy had us all crawling around on our hands and knees like deer and he's like if you want to eat plants you got to eat them like the deer eat them <laughs> and so he had us like go and we were all sniffing the dandelions and then we would eat the dandelions like right off the stock uh it was pretty goofy but then afterwards, we were, you know, a bunch of us were talking and everybody had yellow noses and yellow upper lips <laughs> from sniffing the plants. And so we had all this pollen on us. And so for some, you know, they're producing pollen. The pollen is in these epimictic populations, the pollen's sterile. So why go through the trouble of attracting things by producing nectar and pollen? And it's not just vestigial. Like, it's not just a thing that other aster friends 
do that they you can interrupt me okay (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean if it was vestigial that would be it would be the early stages of being vestigial where it's a vestigial yeah. structure. What's a vestigial yeah. structure? Oh, uh, for the audience out there, uh, it's when you have something that it, your ancestors had, but you don't really use it. Like, an, uh, well, an appendix is a commonly yeah. used example in humans, but we do kind of use it. Yeah. Um, Goosebumps but. would be a good one. Oh, no. Goosebumps are, we kind of still, wait, how are goosebumps vestigial? Because uh, pilo erection, your hair standing up on end would be functional if you had fur. And fur, if you got oh, cold, okay. then they could rise up and insulate okay. you. You know what? That's a good point. I yeah. kind of just thought that there was something it was doing to to warm you that I didn't oh. fully understand. But. Yeah, no. Toenails. Toenails are vestigial. I want to get all my toenails removed as a long distance <laughs> runner. They keep falling off, and I, <laughs> which is way rather have totally lost my toenails and they don't do anything for me. But anyway, so so what you're saying is these flowers, uh, or at least the pollen and the nectar that the flowers are producing, could just be a vestigial structure, and that through time, yeah. they'll no longer have the you know genetic information that codes for producing those. There was a study, I think I don't remember exactly where it was, maybe in Japan, but with a congeneric, so a member of the same genus, another type of uh, taraxicum. In the study, they were comparing uh, the attractiveness of the flowers for pollinators. And it turns out dandelion is better at attracting pollinators than its congeneric, non-common dandelions. I think it was Taraxicum japonicum or something like that. One of the cool things in that study is that it's possible that if you're attracting pollinators, that means that the species that you're competing with can't produce seeds as efficiently ah, and so you might be taking their pollinators from them the next generation yeah thieves thieves yeah that's weird i was thinking the exact opposite because i always assume that plants are just like Passive. very benevolent yeah no oh, yeah. i think of them actually as being more like chaotic positive or whatever but um <laughs> you're such a nerd <laughs> for those of but, you that get it that was like <laughs> <Dungeons and> dragons <laughs> reference but um a poorly made one but I, I mean like yeah i mean i guess it makes sense i mean they're having to compete but i've always like to think about plants as having these this these sort of underground collaborations that we don't fully understand and so mm. i was like well maybe you know they have another kind of friendship for I'm, i can't think of the word um mutualism thank you mutualism a mutualistic relationship with another plant and they know that they can get something from them maybe it's whatever nitrogen or something if that plant mm. then is if they attract more pollinators to the area or something like that but i maybe i just don't know enough about plants yeah well in uh season one before we had joined forces with dr fleener uh we talked about symbioses and the way that i think about mutualisms is that it's mutual exploitation and so each organism is trying to give as little as possible and get as much as possible and with flowers there are all these cheaters within a population where they don't produce any nectar at all so you Mm. can have a field of goldenrods and not all of them will produce nectar i see what you mean that the pollinators have to go to and like they look around for the nectar and they're like, where is it? And they're getting pollen on their legs before flying off to the next one. Cheap. Yeah. Yeah. Well, don't, don't dandelions also produce nectar though? Cause that seems like a mm-hmm. lot of. Yeah. Nectar. That's and why pollen? dandelion fritters are so darn good. Yeah. But like why? Sweet. 
when again it's not every single dandelion is and this is again where is it the, gets so confusing a, with how uh, many Paxis. species there are yeah, yeah so not all of them have that asexual only reproduction mm-hmm. many of them are sexually reproducing yeah that's what I was going to ask if occasionally they would do sexual reproduction so yeah still gives them a little variation etc yeah yeah I was that's what where you would get sort of selection and that's why they aren't just like living in a vacuum but I guess I I I mean I this is fascinating because I thought that they all had just male and female parts and they just yeah maybe one of our future seasons we'll talk about sex because yeah plant sex is bizarre fascinating yeah it's i mean uh so a basal characteristic is like a characteristic that is shared by a whole lineage or all Mm -hmm. you know um and sex is not a basal characteristic of like plants and animals and so we can't think of you know we think of like okay with those trees there are male cones and there are female cones Mm -hmm. but when we say male and female the only thing that means is that the male sex cells are smaller and the female sex cells are larger. But it, you know, it's not the same. Like when we say a male bird and a, like a male robin and a male cardinal, the ancestors of both of those, the common ancestor had a male and a female that was the same. But when we say like a male flower and a male robin, the ancestors did not have those mm-hmm. separate sexes in the exactly. same way. Yeah. And there is like a, you know, a ton of different ways of having sex cells on a plant. Yeah. So it could be in the same flower. It could be on separate flowers, but the same tree. It could be on separate trees entirely. There's, you know, a 3,000-year-old yew in England, I think, and it changed sexes. Like, you know, just within the last decade or so, Jack in the Pulpit will be male in one year. And then if it has a good growing season, the next year it'll be female. And right. so it can go back and forth. Fantastic. Uh, box elders are polygamodioecious, <laughs> which just basically means that it's mostly male or mostly female, but there'll be a couple oddball flowers in there. <laughs> yeah. I love that. <laughs> yeah. I, just, I just straight up, I, yeah, I love that. Um, it's crazy yeah. what we got here. Uh, well, if you want, I can also talk a little bit about, I, I mean, being not a plant doctor, um, I wanted to kind of wiggle my way back to animals in some way. Yeah, and I thought it. it was I thought it was very interesting as we're talking about um, plant sex, of which I know just enough to be able to teach uh, elementary school students about it. I I know much more about some of the other strange ways that other animals reproduce. So I wanted to talk a little bit about parthenogenesis in other animals and parthenogenesis means virgin creation so the it's just the same concept of having this asexual reproduction but i thought it was only appropriate to give an example from a pollinator and i'm wanted to talk a little bit about bees are we talking about honeybees or are we talking about a different kind of bee um i'm talking about honeybees well i know that that this isn't true for all bees but the thing that's extra special about bees is that they have this eusocial structure. Do you, either of you guys know or want to define you society? I think it's a society based around worship of that 3,000-year-old yew tree that <laughs> changes tree. sex recently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Every time it changes sex, they're just like, 
Yeah! They have, yeah, they have a party. <laughs> they have a party. Woo! <laughs> Pretty sure home. that's right. <laughs> you means true. I know because it rhymes. Is that true? true? I thought yeah. it's E-U. E-U-S-O-C-I-A-L. You can't social. spell true without you. <laughs> <laughs> I think you means true. Yeah. You means true? Really? True society? That's fantastic. I didn't know that. It um, also means like good. It's a good society? Well, yeah. wow. We're really projecting onto these bees, aren't we? We definitely so, are. Bees are you social? Let's see. Naked mole rats. Naked mole rats are, I think, the only mammal that are you social. And that's where you just have basically two. You have a queen that reproduces and everybody else is either sterile or does not reproduce, which for everyone in biology, it that is utterly insane to them because what motivates animals in or any species is the act of reproduction and self-preservation of their genes. And so for any animal to not preserve or not want to reproduce is insane to them. So bees are, you know, another one of those species that have a queen that reproduces and they have a bunch of workers and drones that don't. Now, the, I don't know if, you how much you guys know about that whole process but the the workers are all females and the drones are all males yeah and how in the world does that happen what happened to be a beekeeper a really terrible beekeeper yeah i really so So i'm asking you questions just answer the questions just truthfully you socially and i will confirm them as being true true because you're a professional beekeeper. <laughs> I'm not a professional beekeeper. I'm a terrible beekeeper. But one of the things that I can't remember the quote, I've misquoted this a bunch of times, but like I would grab gladly sacrifice my life for two of my siblings or eight of my cousins. Right? <laughs> I or love it. Yes. Four of my cousins or something like that. Thank you, Hamilton. <laughs> yeah. So the more related you are genetically to something, the more yeah. likely you are to invest energy into behaviors that would protect it and so you sociality i can i can't remember the genetics specifically of it but Uh, yeah so i'm gonna actually related than just sisters yeah i'm so i'm gonna talk it out so they don't have the same chromosomes than we do they have a very different set of chromosomes but uh, you can think about it in the same terms so queens they are think about it like they are xy like they have both male and female genetics in them If they are to create a male, they just create the male. They don't need fertilization. Males are all unfertilized. So they are entirely related. Yes, they are entirely related. Now, in order to make a a worker, in order to make a female, those are also, those are fertilized. So the females, if they are all fertilized, if they are all perfect sisters, they are more related to each other because they are related to the drone that fertilized them and the queen that had them. So they're roughly 75% related to each other, whereas they are only 50% related to their mother. Okay. Because they share their mom, yeah. Because they only have the mom, and then they both have mom and dad. So if they are full siblings, they are closer related to each other than they are to their mom. So it is actually in their best interest to be able to you know, keep each other alive and to for ha- to have their mom produce more sisters. So, males. Uh, 
And that that is basically how we get where we get and the difference between a female that becomes a queen and a female that just is a nurse or a foraging worker is royal jelly. So if you add if you give um them royal jelly when they're they're little they they will become a queen. Yeah, they get all beefed up. They get all beefed and they go through sexual maturity. So that's right. It's called mm-hmm. haplodiploidy, by the way, because if you are, I mean, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, where you have, like, um, the difference between going through meiosis or mitosis. Yeah. So if you have a set of chromosomes, just one set of chromosomes, it is haploid, and if you have two sets of chromosomes, it's diploid, but the species is haplodiploid, since some individuals are haploid and some individuals are diploid. This is also true in termites and other eusocial animals yeah i was just looking up a couple things about eusociality i think you does mean good more than true Mm. correction but a number of places to find eusociality is the highest level of organization and sociality where basically you have these these males that don't have to do any work (laughs) so their only job is to mate so that to me seems to be a bit of male bias in defining that as the good the most good form of sociality (laughs) It's the form where males do nothing except have sex. I'm going to say. That's true. Questionable. They do live the longest, though, because they need to maximize the amount that they're mating. It's the first thing in Wikipedia. It's the highest level of organization of sociality is this form. Highest level. That's what it says. I'm just saying. That is unusual because we really like to give humans a lot of credit. Usually it's just like whatever we do is the highest. The highest, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. And then I have another question. So when you make a wish on a dandelion, sure. you say it out loud, does it still come true? I have no experience with that. When? I was never a kid. <laughs> <laughs> never, never done it. I, 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 don't, I don't know where that comes from. The making a wish? No, like why you would need to be quiet in order to have the wish come true. Hmm. Maybe it's like a, if you say it out loud. No, I can't. I got nothing. The devil. The devil hears this it. This is the no. devil. It's what it. That's what it is. He yeah. or she thwarts you. Mm-hmm. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, you can explain. But if you say it out devil. loud and somebody hears you, then they're much more likely to satisfy your wish. Or maybe they think they're going to sabotage your wish. It's maybe the devil. you have to do. It's like always. Re- it always comes back to the devil. You got to do reverse psychology if it's you're worried about the devil hearing yeah. you and then thwarting it i really never want to get re- any money ever i really wish the devil would drop a piano on my head right now i don't know why <laughs> you would wish for them not to but yeah, it can never be too safe you know the yeah. devil sees <laughs> the reverse psychology come on you guys yeah. obviously haven't dealt with wait the devil a, as much yeah, as I wait have. a minute i know this one he's not gonna fall for that yeah um so Glenn, I know you did some research on where they came from and why they're here. (gasps) Yeah, according to my extensive research, (laughs) which was semi-extensive, I think they they uh, the dandelion aficionale at least is from kind of Europe, Europe, Eurasia maybe, but mostly Europe and. I think it came to the United States. A lot of settlers who came to the U.S. presumably brought dandelions with them for medicinal purposes and because it reminded them of home and because they wanted to pee the bed. Did they bring these Mayflowers on the Mayflower? They brought, yes, they may have brought, but they brought dandelions on the Mayflower, perhaps. And they're probably thinking, what if I need to pee the bed? What am I going to do? What am I going to get there? (laughs) I'll bring this. Then if I need to pee the bed, I'm set. 
Um, yeah, so they brought them, and of course, <clears throat> they turned out to be very good at spreading. What with their apomictic ways and their crazy flying parachute akines. So apparently they were brought, yeah, for a combination of medicine, uh, beauty, and reminders of home. Yeah. Are they all over the world, except for maybe Antarctica? I believe they are. Yeah, they're wow. like 100% cosmopolitan all over the place. Yeah. They were, I mean, as you said, I think they were considered to have many, many medicinal properties. So they were sort of like an all-in-one, you know, pharmacy, yeah. pharmacopoeia in one plant. Mm. So they were considered to be worth bringing. There is a little bit of, you know, it's like unclear exactly were they on the Mayflower, how many were brought by early settlers. But the general general consensus was mm-hmm. that many people brought them, like the Spanish brought them to Latin America, English brought them to North America. That sounds like them. It's it's sort of interesting <laughs> that, you know, for... I think there's two interesting things. One is that, like, dandelions today are so maligned as he's, you know, the bane of the lawn and people are trying to actively kill them. And then the other part of it that's pretty interesting is this sort of fear of the unknown and going into a new landscape and wanting to yeah. bring food that could sustain you and not maybe trusting that when you get to this new landscape that there would be things that you could eat that would be aesthetically pleasing and that would be medicinal um although it's it's sometimes it's just like the duke of squirrel or whatever who's like i just want squirrels in my yard (laughs) yeah he's talking about ben franklin (laughs) oh they're so silly with their little faces let's just destroy the continent with squirrels (laughs) (laughs) well i think we covered a lot of ground here in, I was going to make a bad pun about basil rosette. We created a nice little basil rosette, a nice uh, <laughs> biodynamic accumulation of information. We sort of peed a large bed of knowledge, <laughs> you might say. There you go. That's what okay. I was like. Glenn nailed it. Thank you, Glenn. That was perfect. So yeah, that, that wraps up our, our look at urban animals and urban plants <gasps> and what no, it means to look so. live in a city. What is next for us? next season more uh, sex end with sex begin with sex we'll do sex coming up uh Aww. we are going to do a season on endurance so oh, that's definitely ooh. not sex <laughs> um <laughs> yeah <laughs> um yeah we're gonna do a whole season on endurance in uh mostly animals but partly in plants and it's gonna coincide with i'm running a hundred mile race and so right. yeah we'll talk about the physiology of uh long distance uh, yeah. I Is there that. any chance we can do one of the podcasts as you're running the race? <gasps> just as you're running, just like, I don't know if we have the technology. Yeah, probably not. We could, well, yeah, we could live stream it. Sure. We'll do something like that. It's just so, going to yeah. be him breathing really heavily and us just making <laughs> jokes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, well, yeah. Awesome. So, yeah, thanks for joining us for season three, and we'll see you in season four. Bye. See you next time. Thank you, Professor Iwigi, as always. Thank mm-hmm. you, Dr. Fleener. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you, Teague. Yeah, thank you, Glenn of the Dandy Lion. Thank you, Dandies. <laughs> Lions are dandy. <laughs> Everyone should have one. Bye. Well, that's a wrap on season three. Coming up in season four, we look at endurance in humans and animals and follow along as Professor Uwiki trains for a 100-mile race. Ridiculous. So stay tuned. Until then, we'd greatly appreciate you dropping a five-star review for us. It helps us get the word out there on iTunes and other podcast apps. After that, head on over to crowspath.org slash podcast and get in touch with us through the Woodland Message Board. 
Here you can ask us questions, suggest future topics, and even post fake ads that we'll read on the air. You'll also find archived episodes, online natural history programs, and lots of other natural history content. All right, naturalists, that's it for now. We'll see you next time on Single Acorn.